Welcome to Terror Talk. Before we start the show today, I wanted to give you a heads up about our Patreon community. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a patron and join our Discord community, where we watch film together and chat daily. You also have early access to our episodes and a mini-cast that we do exclusively for Patreon members. Also, check out our new website at terrortalkpodcast.com. Follow along as we build it together. Most of all, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. This is part two of our Doctors Who Kill series on Harold Shipman. It's number two in the final installment. And this is what I'm deciding. <laughs> that this We're going we're gonna to wrap it, it up. We're going to wrap that up. Okay. So last we left off, we talked a lot. And now I'm going to move into like how he started to get detected in what he was doing. So for those of you who may have not listened to the first episode, it would be cool if you did. But FYI, this is about Dr. Harold Shipman, who was one of the most prolific serial killers in modern history and a British serial killer. He was a doctor and he would euthanize older Women mostly, but also men and some younger men and women under the guise that he that they had died of natural causes. But what he was really doing was was killing them. Where we left off is that in March of 1998, Dr. Linda Reynolds of the Brook Surgery in Hyde expressed concerns to John Pollard, the coroner of the South Manchester district about the high death rate among shipments patients. So what had started to happen is he'd started to draw suspicion. He'd been killing people for a couple of decades by this point from seventies, mm. eighties, nineties. But what had happened is that he had started to kill more and more and more and more people every year. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that starts to get you noticed. In other words, your insatiable appetite to work through whatever serial killer ritual you're working through eventually gets to a fevered pitch and then people start to notice, right? Like that's what happens. <laughs> Even though he was organized and not doing it so much that people noticed and also we have a cultural norm of respecting doctors and so mm -hmm. he got away with a lot for a long time, which he shouldn't have. Very true. So there was this high death rate. So that's what happens. Like if you have a doctor that sees people in their homes and everybody just everybody starts to say like this person was fine last week and now they're dead and that happens over and over and over again. Somebody goes, "Wait, what?" So in particular, this Dr. Linda Reynolds was concerned about the large number of cremation forms for elderly women that he had needed to wow. countersign. So it's just like, you know, Bobo serial killer gets a gets a parking ticket in a neighborhood and gets caught. It's like that. Yeah. It's like Al Capone gets caught on tax charges and not for right, <laughs> be, right. being a Ted Bunning gets pulled over mastermind. for speeding. Or, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's like that. So she was concerned about the large number of cremation forms for elderly women that he'd needed that uh, countersigned because that's what would happen is if someone died in their home. Apparently, I learned this through looking at this case, then uh, and you wanted them cremated. You had to have it co-signed by a doctor sort of that had those kinds of rights in that county or what have you at the hospital. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but you get the idea. He needed help. <laughs> he needed someone to sign off on it. And so she was like, you know, 
I've been signing a lot of these lately. Police were unable at that time to find sufficient evidence to bring charges and basically closed the investigation like a month later. So, but just a little like, hmm, a little sniff around him. Yeah. Which was good because sometimes it takes a lot of sniffing to actually get convicted. Sure. After the investigation was closed, Shipman killed three more people. In August, taxi driver John Shaw told the police that he suspected Shipman of murdering 21 patients. Can you imagine? The taxi driver's like, uh, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> like a couple months later, I have a suspicion. It just, it's like ripped out of Colombo or something. Yeah. Uh, Shaw became suspicious as many of the elderly customers that he took to the hospital, who seemed to be in good health on the taxi drive there, died in Shipman's care immediately so it tells you what a small town does right yeah. it just it just tells you like and this is what i mean by if you start to kill people that are in good health over and over and over again families friends people start to say but they were fine right like sometimes people drop dead of course yeah but that not, are healthy not this many but not over and over and over again right yeah, so then here's what happens. So these are the sniffing. These are the little sniffs that started to happen. <laughs> Shipman's last victim was a woman named Kathleen Grundy, who was found dead at her home on June 24th, 1998. Uh, and Shipman was the last person to see her alive. And he later signed her death certificate, recording the cause of death, death as old age. Uh, Grundy's daughter became concerned with this situation because... She was informed about her will and that apparently her mother had decided to will Shipman 386,000 pounds. Wow. Now, of course, that would make me suspicious as well. Right. As a child. Like, wait, um, wait, what? Right. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, not that I would care about the money. Just no, that doesn't make any sense from what I would know of my parent or what mm -hmm, have you. Mm -hmm. So... At her urging, at the daughter's urging, uh, Woodruff went to the, she went to the police. That's her name, Angela Woodruff. She went to the police who began an investigation. The body was exhumed and found to contain traces of diamorphine, which is heroin, often used for pain control in terminal cancer patients. Now, what you might remember from last time is that Shipman has this trauma history of his mother dying of cancer in the living room and him uh, witnessing doctors bring her back to life basically with opiates mm -hmm. over and over again and make her feel better and, and um, put away her pain. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he's been doing. He's been uh, reenacting that over and over. Shipman claimed that Grundy, the uh, Kathleen, the victim had been an addict and showed them comments he had written to that effect in his computerized medical journal. Again, <laughs> it's what he wrote. Why would we trust what he says? However, examination of his computer showed that they were written after her death. It, this, this whole time he's been forging everything. He's been like forging <laughs> records, forging journals, and then providing them as evidence. It's like, they, and they you just, realize that's where we're getting the evidence right. is from the person you're telling, you're saying is the murderer. <sighs> and they just trusted him. So he was arrested on September 7th, 1998 because of this falsification of records uh, and was found to own a brother typewriter. <laughs> Okay, so Grundy also, uh, the woman, this victim, this last victim that we're talking about was a former mayor of the city of Hyde, which is where everybody's living, and a wealthy person. So when she died suddenly, you know, obviously her daughter was shocked. Yeah. But what happened is, what they finally, what they actually realized was that Shipman attempted, had forged the will. 
Of course. Yeah. So the forging of the documents, like all of it, like he hadn't actually really convinced her to do anything. Wow. So Shipman's attempt. Uh, he just, this, he just, yeah, he just yeah, took it over. He just, it, literally all the evidence is coming from him. Like any, any kind of, he builds this case of reality that is just not correct obviously good lord this is a quote from i believe the guardian which is a newspaper of the time shipman's attempt at forging the will was described by detectives as so cack-handed uh that it was inevitable he would be caught police found the will had been produced on an aging brother typewriter in shipman's surgery in shipman's surgery and that his fingerprints were on the document and another letter received by the solicitors. So they basically, now they have him on that, at least, right? On this one murder. <sighs> yeah. So following his botched forgery, that's when the body was exhumed, etc. That was just what was I was saying before. They found the abnormally high levels of the heroin or uh, diamorphine, and then he was charged with her murder and forge the forging of the will. What happened though, is then now in custody, the authorities, you know, they begin investigating sure. the deaths of his other patients because then it's like, Oh, Oh hell. Holy right. hell. <laughs> we got to look into this. Well, guy. and we like, uh, they we, don't just do it once. Right. We've, we've said, yeah, I was going to say, we've said this quite a bit, um, in the forensic field. Like if we're working with someone who has a history of, you know, violence or whatever, or, you know, sex offending, we're like, this is the one they got caught on. Yeah. But we know that there's so many always that we will never know about always. And simplistically, if I'm 14 years old and I lie to my mom about something I've lied before, it's not my first lie. You know what I'm saying? It's, this is the same, it's the same, very comp, more complex yep. kind of situation. It's if you're being duplicitous, you're being duplicitous. It's going to happen again. So they go into investigating his other, his other patient files, I guess. And within months, it became clear that the family doctor <laughs> had been systematically administering lethal doses to patients. And so they exhumed a bunch of bodies, actually. Four or five bodies they actually exhumed as well and analyzed them and then was subsequently charged with those other murders as well. So they, they must have found specific evidence in that. Uh, and eventually... By the time we go to trial, he was charged with 15 murders of 15 women, some of whom had been cremated at the doctor's behest. So that was one of the ways he was getting away with it is that he was cremating them. Right. Mm -hmm. So that there was no uh, evidence. But then he also got caught for the, you know, he got suspected for the cremation forms. So there was no, you know, it was yeah, there was no winning either way. He was getting sloppy. He was getting cocky. Yeah, he totally was. And, you know, things things started to happen where, you know, he was very, the families reported he was very cold and unfeeling and dismissive after the deaths. Like, he would be very warm and compassionate and their bestest of friends and coming to the house and caring and talking and sitting and, mm -hmm. and any time of day or night and really caretaking. And then what the family started to report through the investigations was that as soon as their loved one was dead, which now we now know as soon as he had killed them, he was, he became cold, unfeeling, mm -hmm. dismissive, didn't want to talk to them, didn't want to stop by, didn't want to entertain conversation. And he would ask for money. He would ask for property. He became uh, shiftless, you know, mm -hmm. and that makes sense in so many ways. Yep. But like 
psychologically speaking, that makes a ton of sense because he's enacted what he needed to enact. Yep. And probably got some sense of relief in the moment for his issue. You know, some sort of satisfaction from that. He exploited him. And then became irritable and wanted to move on to the next one. Right. And just wanted what he wanted and revealed himself to be who he really was. They were just vessels for him. Yeah, because he'd gone through this whole ritual because also he would he would uh, pose them, you know, after death. There was this after death ritual. He'd kill them and then he would sometimes fully dress them when they weren't fully dressed. Like sometimes take them out of bed, move them, depending on who was around, take them out of bed, dress them, put them downstairs in a chair looking out a window. Like he was reenacting this whole scene, I believe, of his mom and then leave the door open and the heat on full blast. So that the bodies would decompose quicker, so there'd be less evidence. Like he was plot, like there was six, was seven, methodical. eight different ways yeah. that he was trying to yeah. get away with this. So you start to realize, like, oh well, why did this guy get away for twenty years? It couldn't have just been the cultural concept of a smart doctor. Well, that was just a small part of it. He was also doing fifteen things, right, to try to circumvent getting caught. Mm-hmm. The trial. The trial of Harold Shipman began in October 1999 and concluded in January 2000. And you know, there, there are people who really believed him. There really are. I mean, so you'd think, so one of the first things I thought is the jury would be hard to get. <laughs> so the jury was made up of seven men and five women and took 33 hours and 55 minutes in their deliberation. I just want to throw that out there. So Mm -hmm. it took him some time, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. (laughs) His, his attorney was female, which I thought was interesting too. Mm -hmm. Um, And she really, (laughs) this is really interesting. She says a couple of things. She says uh, in her closing speech, defense counsel, Nicole Davies, failed to provide the motive. Mrs. Davies said Dr. Shipman, who denies murdering 15 patients and forging the will of one of his alleged victims, had been a caring general medical practitioner since the 70s. Um, She goes on to talk about the fact that they're using all of this against him and it's it turned on its head and that caring evidence was used against him. The fact that Dr. Shipman avoided the need to put relatives through the distress of a post-mortem examination was just another example of his caring ways. <laughs> she said, you may have formed the view that keeping records was not his forte within the scale of things. What is really more important that patients are seen and cared for or that immaculate records are kept. So I want to stop there for a second, just because all of us who are in, medicine and mental health know that there is an ethical and legal standard to keeping records for a reason. Mm -hmm. So for her to just be like, what's the big deal? I mean, you're so caught up in him keeping records. He was just, he was too busy caring for these patients. Yeah. Yeah. These are her closing arguments. The standard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I want to also mention what he was like in court because it was very widely publicized and written about that he was, a haughty figure in court, like that he was oh, very self-important and he, he would come up with these outrageous falsehoods uh, and he would, he would, you know, denial of, of anything he had done. He, he would tell relatives that he had called ambulances and it, like he, he just like lied about everything. So even in court, he would say, you know, I called the ambulance and I wanted to save them. And, you know, but then you check the phone records and he didn't call anybody. 
So he was telling these like outrageous things and they're just easy to check out. And he would alter all of his medical records to say that the women had chronic health problems. Right. When they didn't. Right. And, and everybody knew they didn't, (laughs) you know, like, so that because he had to alter them to, to support the fake claims he was making on the death certificates and to the families. And he would deny, and he was apparently stockpiling diamorphine. Oh, I mean, there's just so much evidence showing that he was reckless, addicted, traumatized, sociopathic, like there's so much there. And the fact that, you know, I don't, and I, I want to say that if it was now, it would be different, but I don't have that much faith, especially with, I think I had brought up George Tyndall in our in our first episode of this, the, the gynecologist at university of Southern California who had, you know, he was able to have his entire career before he lost his, he lost his license in like his seventies. Yeah. This is a 23 year murder spree and the estimates are more than 218 of his patients. And then later when they did this, there's this 156 page clinical audit that you can read on the internet. If you just Google that and the shipment inquiry is also very widely available if you're really into this. And now they put the figure close to 200 plus 250 plus. And they think the youngest victim was four years old. Right. <laughs> just like 23 years. So yeah. he wasn't so he wasn't an idiot. No, it was slow. He was he was pernicious. Yes. Very pernicious. And, and in the beginning he wasn't doing it very often right. so he could get away with it. He got longer. confident. I mean, it's just like someone who cheats, right? It's like they dabble in it and they go, "Ooh, I didn't get caught and that was kind of fun and maybe I'll do it again." And then and then that that confidence becomes cockiness and then the messiness and then, you know, they get caught. Well, and you have to think psychologically too about how he's aging and how his narcissism yep. is starting to implode and become very vulnerable and very cracked. Mm-hmm. And the way this particular malignant narcissist dealt with that is to keep medicating himself yeah. with with his uh violence, right? In my opinion. Yes. So we have to talk about the wife. Okay. So as, as Shipman begins to slowly become very clearly in court, unless you had anything else to say about this. No, no, I just, I thought, I mean, his defense was a joke is what I'm really, what I wanted to share. (laughs) Fair. I mean, they had to come up with something. Yeah. (laughs) Which is their job, right? So they had to come up with something. That's all you got. You're like, oh, that's not so awesome. But, you know, good shot. Gave it the college try. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So as he slowly begins, it slowly becomes true in other words it's starting to come to light what Mm -hmm. really happened uh, with the press in the trial you know his answers being crazy wacky really making no sense you know he has a wife whose name is primrose you may remember from the first Mm -hmm. episode Mm -hmm. and she was attended every day of his trial made weekly visits to the prison they would hold hands kiss appear to have not a care in the world when she would go to visit people were baffled by her you know ability to support him 
you know, they would make uh, small talk during the breaks at court. And she had, I read one thing that said, quote unquote, a pathological denial of her husband's oh, She crimes. would have to. Mm-hmm. Or she would explode. I mean, she would literally implode if she admitted to what she was married to. I think it would be incredibly difficult for the healthiest of people yeah. to to just ingest that. And then you've got press, right? And, and, and there's going to be an evolution of your understanding of what happened. And I think most people having a spouse for 30 years or what have you, 25 years, whatever it is, you're going to believe them first. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's incredibly human. You're going to believe them first. This is a person that you feel you've known for 25 years. You're going to believe them first. If I, if I find out Kathy's a mass murderer, I, I've been friends with her for over 10 years. I'm going to believe her first. Right. I mean, and if you think <laughs> about where he was doing this, it was at right. his work. Like the, not to digress too much, but you know, when, when you read or listen to any of the interviews from the daughter of BTK, she's like, there was one room in the house we weren't allowed to go in. We thought that was a little suspicious, but other than that, like, you know, dad got angry here and there, but like we had no flipping clue that he was out torturing same with and stalking. And yeah. yeah, same with when we did Kuklinski. That's the same thing. He was, uh, I mean, his wife got beat and his, his kids got thrown around a bit, but like every, and everybody knew he was, had a violent temper and that he didn't talk about his work and then he probably worked with the mob, but nobody had any idea no clue. about the, massive amount of killing he was doing so anyway uh so in the but apparently you know in the final days of his life which i'm going to get to you know how he died etc oh well let me let me say this so those seven men and five women who took 33 hours and 55 minutes uh unanimously found the doctor guilty of 15 counts of murder and forging Kathleen Grundy's will, and they sentenced Shipman to life in prison with no chance of parole. And so apparently, much later, his wife, who, you know, had always been a stalwart supporter, began, I believe, and the accounts sort of suggest that he, she began to suspect it was, it was true. And I guess there is a quote from, they wrote letters, because that used to be a thing. I don't know if you know. Writing letters? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it People was. used to write them. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, she wrote something in a letter that said, tell me everything no matter what. Mm. And that was the first, apparently, in the postmortem of all the documents, that was the first time she suggested that she sort of knew that okay. something was up. Which, okay. So... I want to talk a little bit about how he died because it was it was kind of controversial. Okay. Uh, Harold Shipman was found at six twenty a.m. on January thirteenth, two thousand four, having hanged himself in his cell at Wake, Wakefield Prison, West Yorkshire. It was on the eve of his fifty eighth birthday. Most of the commentators and the families of the victims expressed uh, extreme anger that he would have been able to evade serving his sentence by taking his own life and, of course, blamed the prison mm-hmm. for having allowed him to do that. And we've heard this in so much, like Epstein and all these yep. cases, right? Yeah. Right. So following Shipman's suicide, a fellow inmate at Wakefield 
gave testimony that he overheard a prison officer telling the killer to, quote-unquote, go hang himself, and if he didn't know how, he'd be shown. While some of the British tabloids, of course, uh, as we do, pile on and celebrate when somebody like that dies, and you can have your feelings about whether that's kosher or not, uh, they... You know, they ran a headline on the sun that said, ship, ship, hooray. In other words, he's shipped off and shipment, et cetera, that they were celebrating that he had killed himself, which I don't agree with. Mm. But that's okay. uh, that's that's our press and that's our culture. Mm. Wow. So, you know, the the sad part about this is that he was. What's interesting about this is that it was mindful on shipments part. And, and there's a reason why it happened. So. It's sort of one final outrage, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a separate report, the independent newspaper had a theory that he, quote unquote, timed his suicide so his wife could collect 100,000 pounds of his pension. Shipman had been demonstrating suicidal thoughts for some time, and his main preoccupation became securing his pension for his wife. And it was revealed after he died that if he died before the age of 60, the doctor's wife would be eligible to receive a lump sum of $100,000, followed by a £10,000 a year stipend afterwards. Uh, And if he lived past past the age of 60, then she would have only received a fraction of that. Okay. So I'm going to say that if he was talking about how he was suicidal before that, I think that's garbage. I think... He was do- just like the records and the will and his medical records and all of the the stuff that he would create. I think he probably created suicidal ideation mm-hmm. and reported it mm-hmm. and documented it and had it be like so that by the time he killed himself mindfully and on purpose in order to get his wife this money, mm-hmm. which is also interesting because mm-hmm. why the heck does right. this guy care about anybody? Right, right. Right. But he did have kids and he did have his wife. And we have seen with Kuklinski and BTK and other types of cases, whereas they might treat not treat them very well and they might be malignant narcissists or they might just be narcissists in general. They take care of their families. Now, that is that ownership is that I, I was about to say, you know, yeah. all of that, except for, you know, and at that point, he didn't. What's interesting about that for a narcissist is that at that point, he didn't see any value in his own life. Mm. which I think is, is makes this interesting. It does. Well, yeah. Psychologically. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. never spoke to any, he ne- that, and that's also why people keep talking about this case because he never spoke to anybody. Nope. He never spoke to any mental health professionals. All we have is what he did. And this is really, this action has a lot of incongruent parts. Right. And he took his, what he did to the grave. Like there was never yes. any, you know, like even Ted Bundy at one know. point was, no. you know, admitted, even though it was crocodile tears and whatnot, like he died in complete denial. Well, and that's also what's, that's also a behavior that is incongruent with what we know exactly. of this type of narcissist. Exactly. So the fact that he never did want to tell his story and that he never did want to get any kind of uh, notoriety for his story, the fact that he didn't want to be a public victim, which is what we see a lot yep. of times. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he, even if it was fabricated, which I do believe things might've been fabricated on what leading up to his death, just because he had fabricated so many other things in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm left to believe nothing else because he wanted it to people to believe that he had killed himself 
genuinely because of his depression Mm -hmm. when really he had killed himself to get this money for his wife. But see, the only thing I can put together is that perhaps he was genuinely depressed and suicidal and he thought, well, I'm a, you know, if I'm going to do it anyway, I might as well do it beforehand and then she'll get money and take care of my kids, which are the only lineage I have to propagate my bloodline. And maybe so. I mean, so there's I mean, he has a weird connection to the whole family lineage thing any anyway, because his entire crime was a uh, mother was the, the, you know, reenactment of his mother's death. So, right. I think there's stuff in there because he never sat and talked to a mental health professional. I think there is stuff in there that although it's, you know, they have, you know, there is research that, that shows that some sociopaths actually have a few people in their life that they would do anything for. That's right? what we were talking about with Kuklinski. That's and right. ATK, so. Right. So mm-hmm. that lines up where maybe his wife was the exception. You know, she was she was an innocent victim in this. And she supported and believed his. What, yes. What he would like his mind. He, you know, I imagine the whole time he was trying to say that he never did it either. He was trying to convince himself that, he didn't do it either. That's what I'm saying. So I wonder, e- even if there's like a split reality here sure. where he's he's going, this is the only person who believed my truth. Mm-hmm. Because he had lied so much that he believed he he never did any of this maliciously. Mm-hmm. That would add up for me. Yeah, that adds up. I mean, it adds up for me, too. It's got something to do with, I mean, honestly, because we've talked about and I've researched other uh, people who are serial killers who had families and protected their families at all costs. Yeah. So this this jives for me. It's just very interesting the way it kind of went down that he was, I I think it's coupled with the fact that he didn't want to be that public victim and he didn't want to, because Kuklinski did a series of HBO interviews. He wanted to tell his story all over town. Right. He wanted to talk all the time. So did Bundy. So did, you know, like everybody's this public, I want to tell my story so Mm -hmm. that everyone can see my side of it type of thing. Mm -hmm. And here's my horrible childhood. Right. You know, Manson, et cetera. Like they all do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he didn't want to. So I don't know culturally. I mean, is that British? You know, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I'm being slightly tongue in cheek, but yeah, what's, what's that all about? Uh, okay, so that's the story. I think maybe we want to talk a little diagnosis, probably a little psychology around him. Narcissist, sure, probably with depressive. Yeah, I was about to say that tendencies, depression. There's trauma there. Um, I mean, there's a there's all kinds of as we talk regularly. There's all kinds of different narcissism, uh, narcissistic traits, etc. And I, I do want to only just lately say. You know, there are grandiose narcissists, there's vulnerable narcissists, mm-hmm. there's malignant narcissists, there's there's a bunch of different other buzzwords for narcissists that we could use. I would say that he would even fall, because he, I mean, and it's hard because if we're putting him in the, you know, he's a sociopath, he's not a psychopath, which mm-hmm. means... Um, you know he's gonna he's gonna be more easily triggered and have more of that narcissistic response and defense that psychopaths psychopaths are just more like if you get in my way I'll yeah. I'll kill you but I'll end I, you. yeah but otherwise I'm really not very interested in you mm-hmm. um, but I feel like there was a vul- vulnerable narcissistic component to him because I do too. He, he didn't he didn't present with grandiosity he wasn't off putting people really cared about him they it, I mean his own uh, 
you know, staff and stuff had empathy for him and, and like, he was likable. And then, you know, I think he saw himself as a victim. I do too. I do too. You're, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, the way I look at it is you, with a grandiose narcissist, which I, I, I believe he has, he had at certain types of times in his life, he had that, which is more, more of a stable grandiosity. They can be successful. They can hide their vulnerability very well. Uh, and, and, and you can treat, you can treat grandiose narcissists. You just have to treat them for a very, very long time because ultimately you have to be able to see their vulnerability and you can get there. At least in my, in my professional opinion, you can get there if they stay in therapy, there's all kinds of factors that have to like kind of align for that. But that's why you have to treat them for a very long time. But but it's more of a stable grandiosity. So when you get into a more vulnerable uh, narcissistic presentation, you've you've definitely got more. It's it's often uh, coupled with uh, borderline personality disorder or you know more borderline traits, and sometimes co-occurring, but sometimes mistaken for BPD. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's more borderline level of functioning. And I'm not saying just strict BPD, but more in the psychoanalytic right sociopath sociopath structure is functioning at a borderline level so i would say like later yeah like not really being in touch with reality yeah like later there becomes this uh poor reality testing Mm -hmm. and there becomes these so this is the way i would describe him as like there becomes these more ethical lapses Mm -hmm. even though he was unethical the whole time we understand but like more more uh mindfully unethical and then, then really importantly a shakier identity so it's just uh uh, you know, stormy relationships and constricted, uh, off-putting behavior. So that's what I'm. I think that's why I wanted to pull out or tease out that piece about how he was kind and generous and whatever before the death, and then after there was this switch. There was this. So there's this really shaky identity and poor reality testing. Because then you can go over into malignant narcissism, which is where you get that full paranoia and severe antisocial traits. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure he had times like that where he was, Mm -hmm. you know, but they can function really well Mm -hmm. in, in the world. Mm -hmm. And by functioning, we mean like go about their business Mm because he was functioning well. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. Dr. Shipman, you got any last words? What do you think about? He was creepy as hell. (laughs) I wouldn't want him as my doctor. Yeah, no way. Did you know about him before we Um, did this thing? No, I stumbled upon him when we were looking at Dr. Death. He kind of popped up and I think we had, you and I had started to talk about how he, you know, he was one of the other Dr. Deaths and I started looking him up, but I didn't know much about him. Nope. I didn't know anything about him until uh, we decided to do a little bit of uh, Doctors Who Kill here on the show. I'm not sure when we will get to another one, but you know, we go round and round with our topics, but thank you so much for tuning into this. This was just an interesting way. We talk a lot about psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, et cetera, on the show. So this was just another way in. And I thought this case was interesting because it lasted so long and it was so Mm -hmm. famous and I hadn't known anything about it. And that's most likely because it's Brits and, it's 70s, 80s, 90s, and it wouldn't have gotten a lot of press over here. Right. So I wouldn't have necessarily known about it at that time. Uh, so it was an interesting, I thought it was an interesting discussion. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.